Hello, and welcome to Integrated Rhythm. On today's episode, you'll be hearing from Shawnee Brown. Shawnee Brown is an award-winning international swing dance instructor, judge, dancer. Her unique history includes close mentorship from elders within the Southern California swing dance community. Um, a person of particular note for her is Willie Dasatoff. He's one of the old timers revered in Baboa. Along with her over 20 years of dancing history, she has an educational background that includes women's studies and, and, under, and also um, studying uh, biomechanical movement. She brings all of these pieces into her teaching and into her understanding of social issues within the swing scene. Shawnee is a treasure trove of information. We appreciate Shawnee Brown. Thank you so much for tuning in. Here at Integrated Rhythm, we wanted to take a moment and pause and reflect on the events of yesterday. Today is January 7th, 2021. And yesterday, a group of extremists stormed the Capitol. That in and of itself is traumatizing. We wanted to be mindful of our listeners who are coming from a variety of backgrounds, recognizing that each and every one of you might be experiencing the effects of trauma. What does this mean for our world today that thousands of people stormed Capitol Hill and disrupted Congress. I know from my perspective, a perspective of marginalized identities, being a black woman in the United States, yesterday was terrifying because the people who stormed the Capitol were carrying Confederate flags, um, hung up a cross and then put a noose around it, um, engaged in activities that, were, that are reflective of extremist ideologies. And they did so in a way that demonstrated a kind of audacity that I know another group of mar another marginalized group may not have been able to get away with. Let's take out, let's substitute um, the word extremists and put in black people. Let's take out the word extremists and put in Muslims. Let's take out the word extremists, extremists and put in Latinx people. And what do you think the result would be? I can tell you the result because there was a woman who was found to be mentally unstable. And some years ago, she stormed the gates of the Capitol in, in a moment of delusion 
with her baby in her car. And she met a fatal end. That woman looked like me. So recognizing that privilege is unearned social power that is often invisible to those who have it. It was very clear that the events of yesterday, had they been perpetrated by pretty much any other group that was from a minoritized or marginalized perspective, would have led to far more fatalities, far more injured if the summer was any indication, we know what would have happened. And so those of us from marginalized identities are probably processing that or resigned in that. I cannot speak for everyone, but I know that I am. And it's hard. So we at Integrated Rhythm wanted to take a moment and acknowledge that wanted to name the atrocity. You know that we're thinking of you, our hearts are with you. Thank you so much for joining us and, and listening to our wonderful episode about Ms. Shani Brown, an incredible individual with wonderful things to say. So, Shani, I would love to hear a little bit about um, how you got started in swing dancing. And those of us who know you, who know a little bit about your story, have an understanding that you have a mantle to carry. And so it's this really interesting, you have this really interesting relationship with swing dances. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself in this dance? Yeah. Um, so... I should actually go back a little further than I usually do with the story. And that's when I started dancing in San Diego. Um, I did mention it recently uh, that I actually started swing dancing because I was going out to punk and ska clubs all the time. And uh, from the time I was like in junior high or elementary school, and there's like an all ages club right next to my house in my gymnastics center. Um, and there were swing dancers there. And I was like, that's cool. Um, so I started to, and like the fad was out, like Gap commercial had been out, you know, it was just sort of a thing that was becoming a, a national phenomena again. Um, and uh, I started taking some swing classes and Peter Loggins had come down to San Diego to teach a series of classes over a weekend. Um, and I got hooked into like my first weekend event sort of a thing that, you know, here in San Diego. And I went up to, I, I got into colleges and I chose to go to UC Irvine because I could be near the scene that I knew I was starting to like drive up to Orange County and want to go dancing at Memories and, and see what the sort of like dance thing was about. And I also quit gymnastics. So I'd had a knee injury and uh, dancing was weirdly less stressful on my knee than 
gymnastics was obviously um most mm. people are like it's terrible on your knees and i'm like this is amazing <laughs> this is so much easier <laughs> um, it. yeah it was so much lighter on my knees and it was just specifically um the sort of smoother styles of swing dancing that orange county was doing that was so much like i was like oh when i think about the physics of movement and this is all coming from my gymnastics training i'm like this is great i can do this for a long time because it's not like mm. impacting me and they were starting to talk about stuff like that anyway so i i went to orange county and my first uh, week at school you have like orientation week before you actually start university and we were rushing fraternities and sororities and i happened to walk into the fraternity house next door and there was this guy giving a lesson on swing outs um to this other fraternity member um, that fraternity member weirdly happened to be dating one of like the premier choreographers of the Orange County dance teams, but like wow. I didn't know that at the time. It was just sort of like a, a small world. Um, but on the back of uh, in the back of the room was a video playing of Willie dancing. And I was like, "What's that?" And the guy's like, "Well, that's Balboa." And I'm like, "I've seen Balboa like at Memories and when Peter did." I was like, yeah. "What's that?" what's that? I want to see that. <laughs> and the guy who was teaching had been dancing actually and, and practicing with Willie for about a year and a half at that point and was like, hmm, you have a good eye. Let's talk. <laughs> By the way, uh, for those of you listening at home who don't know about it, Willie Desitoff was one of the great original bow swing and Balboa dancers from Southern California back in the 30s and 40s. And he has a really unique style too, which is very exciting. Unique. Like his feet were doing these things and like it was all these wiggly waggly knees everywhere. Um, Mm -hmm. But it just looks so smooth. And the follow he was dancing, it was the 1982 dance party and it was Marie that he was dancing with. And I was like, I love this. It just looks so effortless and simple. And that's what my body wants right now. Um, and so I started working with this guy like four days a week and he was prepping me before I went to Willie in my first chance. So like I got to go to Bobby McGee's and I met Jack and Annie and I started working with Jack and I met Hal and Marge and I met everybody else that was at Bobby McGee's. So Willie wasn't there. He, um, hadn't been going, coming down to say uh, Orange County very much. Uh, so I was getting Again, prepped for- to go to the man kind of thing. <laughs> Okay. Again, for those of you who don't know much about uh, Balboa history, Bobby McGee's was this restaurant. It was I call it like I always call it a, sh- a Shoney Shoney's. Uh, on acid. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's it's a kitsch themed uh, restaurant uh, that was all over Southern California, Arizona, I believe. And like one half of it was a steakhouse sort of a kitsch restaurant, um, you know, think like 1970s steakhouse. And then the other side was a sunken bar. And this was at all of their locations in general, some sort of a sunken general dance floor bar area. And they were split in half. So you could go in one side or the other, which was really neat. I really missed that place. It was a great place to dance. And they had mirrors also. Oh, sorry, I'm going to deviate into that mirrors at the bottom the of the floor. So like surrounding the dance floor at the like bottom, you know, foot and a half, you could see everybody's feet. Uh, which is a great learning tool as I was going, because I would sit there and like watch what, you know, the Marge or Annie was doing behind me while I'm trying to look at my feet. Like, is that the same thing? <laughs> is that like you, uh, like, like uh, some of the others who, who learned, who got to go to Bobby McGee's and kind of like grew up dancing and learning how to dance bow and bow swing and Southern Lindy, so- SoCal Lindy there. It sounds like you developed these superhero traits of like being able to like look in a mirror while you feel what's going on so that you can like put the two together. And so you're like 
switching in your brain the reverse image of what's going on and like well, one of those superhero traits that comes with working with old timers uh it comes with working from old timers but what people don't remember and and i figured this out early when i was working with billy is i have 18 years of gymnastics training before that and with olympic gymnastics coaches where it was all about learning like not just where you know you put your body but like when to kick when to power through things like what inside of your body is doing to make some of these insane looking things happen but they're really not that insane if you know the physics of it and so like my mind was just to like watch this and make sense of the physics and when they would change the feeling it's like oh what internally are they changing to make the physics work and what i'm seeing ah okay and like releasing my sense to that rather than i didn't have that sort of top-down approach of like i learned it one way and then i had to deconstruct it like i was making sense of it all in the yeah. process yeah yeah and and getting input from all of them. So like I was taking what everybody said and listening. I knew I knew leaders at the time in the the late nineties, early two thousands had their favorite leads that they've watched and they followed and they upset the old original dancer leaders that they became um they pick apart their their movement, but uh they would get only obsessed about one of them, right? And like wouldn't like make sense of the big picture of what everybody was doing and how that sort of made a common thread. Um, yeah, I, I remember like, uh, so I, I came into Balboa in the early 2000s. So this is uh, years after Shawnee's gotten into Balboa, but I remember very distinctly, you know, and I came from Atlanta, so I didn't really connect. Uh, I, I didn't know much about Southern California and the dancing legacy that it had for those who lived in Southern California. But I do very distinctly remember that like those first few years of my classes, your teachers were either your your male teachers or your leader teachers were either Willie Desitoff devotees or Maxi Dorf devotees, and those were like your or two how. like or how if you or were how, with, or how like right right Garrett. exactly or how so those were like you're you're gonna get a how teacher or a Willie teacher or a, as far as the leaders went yeah yeah so I was just looking at it from the sort of broader approach that when I finally did which helped because I was dancing with them excuse me. Um, and it helps because I could figure out how to adjust for each person. Um, and I was learning the skill of following, right? I've been used to like my body moving by itself for 18 years. And here I am like also in the entire process learning to that sort of um, waiting and sort of letting initiation happen and not being like the person that takes initiative all the time. Like that was a stretch a setback for me as a person to like let myself sit back and not be in control of everything as a follow. So I was learning those simultaneously with all these people. Um, that when I got to Willie, I already knew so much about how he trained differently than all the others did. Um, but I also was coming with a much broader groundwork of knowledge. And I also had gymnastics training that I was willing to submit to sort of the hard work of under willying willying <laughs> willying to submit <laughs> <laughs> to the um cheese bobby <laughs> that was really bad i apologize oh, i'm here for <laughs> it horrible um every pun i'm here for it but yeah so i was willing to sort of go the hard route and not just look for the easy answers but to show that i was willing to do hard work to understand simple things um made working with willie much easier than my peers found it. Certainly the partner that brought me <laughs> was really upset that I worked so quickly with him. Well, you know, you, you've missed, you know, you've mentioned these pieces so many times before and I never put them together that, you know, so Willie Desitoff, uh, for, again, for those of you listening, he was 
uh, he, he identified very much with his Russian heritage and he identified very much with that the Russian aspect of training and the Russian act like Willie himself had done gymnastics. Um, yeah. Yeah. About, so, yeah. And so it makes so much sense that Shawnee, who's come from a heavy, probably Russian influenced gymnastic training background is going to just like click right in there with the way that Willie kind of like saw training and the act of getting good at a skill. Yep. Is that, is that an accurate way of saying That's it? That's a very accurate way of saying it. My partner who brought me into the situation was there much more for an emotional sort of thing from Willie and was not the kind of disciplined person. So Willie always had to harp on him constantly about like, just go stand in a corner and do the thing and just do it over and over again. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'll go do it. <laughs> um, so it was just a more now and, and Willie just never had to ask twice of me to do that. Yeah. So yeah, it's really easy. Yeah. Well, Did, uh, and, oh, sorry, sorry, Bobby. You first. Oh no, I was gonna say, I know that I've heard the story about um, you having to walk for a very long time before being allowed to do anything else, and this this is kind of reflective of that kind of old school style of teaching. Um, so I, I just wanted to ask about that yeah. little anecdote. Yeah. So it's actually interesting yeah. that. Um, Willie was different than all the other original bow dancers that we worked with, even trained with. And like, he was thinking about things like down on lower levels, not about the move that you did or the move that you wanted to learn. Like he was thinking about like your basic movement, how you move through space in the world. And the main way we did that was walking. So he, so like, you have to relearn how to walk um, and walk in a way that's productive for dancing. And so he, like he had actually built a ballroom basically in his, garage which was like an eight car garage it was just like giant floor downstairs and he'd make me just do laps around it and then my partner and i would go to school and we have a school that was built in a circle so i had to walk around school the way that willie had taught me and i would walk from my apartment uh, my dorm to classes on campus like walking the way willie wanted to walk um but it it did move that along a little faster because I guess my partner did walking for a few weeks longer than I did, um, like a month longer or more. So, but then it was like you did a basic for six weeks and that was it. And then you know I accidentally triple stepped. He's like, "Cool, all right, we're ready to move on." And it's like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean almost because like it maybe because it came out naturally or because you just because it came out naturally. I've been doing my basic for so long, and like I heard something, and I was like, "Ooh, boop, boop," and he goes, "See, you just do it." <laughs> that's that's so cool. The like student he... is ready. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's she's ready. Um, and... Sorry, my last comment. Then Bobby, I want to hear your question. Um, but it just, it seems like there's this very organic way that he allowed your body to find these movements. And um, I feel like what's interesting about the swing dances is that they have ballroom pieces and heritage pieces. And you find the overlap of that in this experience where he is trusting the mechanics of your body. You're trusting the mechanics of your body uh, to, to learn um, how to move. And then, of course, there's a shift if we know the history about how we've come to learn these different dances. But um, yeah, so it wasn't a top down approach. He wasn't like uh, saying, you know, you move 
your foot in this angle, this direction, you know, that works for my body. He'd be like, the point is, is that your weight should be here wherever you are, right? And my body is built very differently than these two very thin framed men that were teaching me at the time. Um, But it was about feeling where my body, where the physics of my body made the same thing happen for their body. It's going to look slightly different, but it's going to come from many of the same mechanics on a very basic level is the way he thought about it. But everybody else was literally being taught. Like if you went to Howe's house, you got taught a move. Like it wasn't about um, how you made the move happen. You just like learned how to make the move happen no matter what. Like you weren't taught to make sense of it. You just like you did the move with a few times with them. You say, no, move your foot here. No partner comes around more here. He'd work on it like that. But it wasn't about like making sense of how and why we moved that way and why those choices were made in the first place. And Willie was all about understanding that. Do you feel the other, uh, how much did the old timers like, or to what extent were they conscious of your body and how it moved when you danced with them? How much were they conscious of your body? Um, that's an interesting question. Cause in some part of my mind, I want to say like, they were a hundred percent conscious of your body. Like in the sense that like they were making sense of feeling where you were and where your weight was all the time. They did adjust themselves. Um, a lot about like 40% of them would ask you to come to them versus coming to you, if that makes sense. So they would feel where your body is and be like, okay, no more's mine. <laughs> this is where it's supposed to be. Um, but the way that you also frame that of like how conscious of they are of your body, I don't know, like in terms of my body shape or like who I am or what that was, I don't know how much they were conscious of those things. One of them definitely was conscious of my body. <laughs> <laughs> but the majority of them I don't think were conscious in those ways about like what my shape was like or how that might change things necessarily. Yeah. Uh were they conscious there or so how much did the old timers do you think thought about your identity as a black woman or that that they were, you know, around a black woman or they were working with a black it's woman? It's interesting. Like some are very aware of it in some like um but also in a way that like it was just, it might be mentioned in passing conversation and I'll explain that, but like, it was never a thing. It was never like, I was a different person there. It was something that was ever really talked about. Um, around this time, I often wore my hair in uh, long pigtail braids as my hair is rather long and sort of, I have native American style hair. So protective is just to braid it up and sort of whipping my partners around in the face <laughs> with it. Um, And so I would get little remarks maybe of like, uh, you know, little Cherokee princess um, on occasion. But other than that, like they knew that I was black. They'd met my my parents. My parents came once to Bobby McGee's. They met my dad. They'd seen that I was black. It just wasn't a thing. Like half of them were Hispanics. Like one was Filipino, uh, you know, like it just. I don't know. It, it wasn't something that they bothered about. Now, Hal was interesting, though, because he was also starting to get Alzheimer's at this point. Um, so he would forget that I wasn't Hispanic sometimes. Um, and Marge would remind him. So, like, that was the only amount of conscientiousness that I would remember that Marge would remind him. She's not Hispanic. Remember how that's Shawnee. Um, and, like, so, yeah. Uh, but other than that, it wasn't yeah. a conscientious thing with him yeah but it was also interesting that the other follows who hung around them 
for Denise, who hung out with us every Sunday, who's Puerto Rican, and Tise, <laughs> who's Asian. So they were like, I don't know, just that's what they do. These kids. Yeah. Yeah. And just to explicitly state some things, because I know our audience members, some of them, like this is old news, they know this, but then some might be brand new. Um, we're talking about people who, so um, when was, when was Hal born? When was... They're um, ranging in birth from 1920, I want to say, 1917. Some of them as early yeah. as that to, I think the latest ones are born in the 19, late 30s, 40s. Some of the younger crowd yeah, yeah. dance there. Yeah. And so their dancing heyday was in like the 1940s and 50s, right? And so we have 30s, lots 40s, of... 30s, 40s, and 50s, yeah. Mm-hmm. 30s, 40s, and 50s, sorry. Um, I was thinking about the ones who were born in 1930. Anyway, but um, <laughs> so we're talking about this older generation of people yeah. um, just to kind of like lay out the socio-cultural landscape, right? So we're talking about an older generation of people in the 1990s, yeah. right? 90s, 2000s, yeah. Mm-hmm. 1990s, 2000s. They're um, all about 80 and, or 90 years old at this point. A few of them are in their yeah. 60s and 70s. Yeah. And so, and we have this beautiful biracial girl learning how to dance, right? Who's super talented. And um, everything that you've described is just kind of like this multicultural space because you have people coming from all over these different places and influenced by by different cultures set in SoCal. And um in Southern California. And so I, I feel like that picture, that landscape is not what I thought of when I thought about swing dancing. You know, that that picture didn't really come into my mind in full view until like the last three years. So um Yeah, the, the uh for those of you that, uh yeah, for those of you who aren't again aware of the Southern California side of things, uh we in the modern era, if we think of you know, if we saw film footage of any of those 1940s movies, it's easy for us through our lens to see, oh, that's a room full of white teenagers, like standard white American teenagers. Uh, what we don't realize is that Southern California at the time, especially Los Angeles area, was a huge place for immigrants to go and find work. And so these, quote, white kids, unquote, a lot of them were first generation Americans whose parents had come over from European countries. And so you they have themselves were Russian, not born here. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have Russian neighborhoods where Willie Dezatov uh, hangs out most of his time. And then you have Armenian neighborhoods and Turkish neighborhoods where Hal Takir lives. And, and so you have all these uh, kids growing up, learning what it means to be American while also being very specific to their own European background cultures. And uh, and one of the interesting things is even though there was no there neighborhoods themselves were often either, you know, immigrants tended to live with each other in their own communities, which makes total sense. There was also redlining, which does not make, you know, (laughs) total sense. But that is why most black Americans lived in similar neighborhoods. And uh, however, the schools were not segregated entirely. And so. Right, right. And and so you and so there's this great picture of Willie Desitoff's yearbook where Willie Desitoff is standing there and one kid over is is a black teenager and then two kids back is a Japanese teenager, right? You have you have all these obvious uh and these teenagers are watching each other dance and they're doing the dances at school, right? Just because they're not put in the movies. Uh doesn't mean they all weren't part of the same social 
phenomena that was happening at their time, right? The same way that just because certain people ended up in the movies in the 90s and the commercials and the music videos, even now, doesn't mean there aren't a bunch of other people dancing. It's just that's how Hollywood tends to work. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And to me, you're really special, Shawnee, in that um, one, you're just Shawnee Brown. So by virtue of being Shawnee Brown, you're amazing. Um, And in carrying this mantle and working with Willie and working with the original dancers, and um, you have this special knowledge that um, that's been really, I've benefited from it for sure. Um, And I think Bobby had once framed this for me uh, and I, I loved it the way he framed it. He said, the people that um, the original dancers entrusted this dance to were, were you're talking about um, Denise and Tise and you, like these are these women who represent like this, these multicultural perspectives. And, um, and so, yeah, it just, I, I think it's a really special story and I mean, a lot of other people did get a chance to work with them, but there was a way that we spent time with them, not just learning, like, it wasn't just learning the dance, like, we spent time with them, learning from them, hanging, like, Tise would have dinner with them, you know, even on nights when we weren't going out dancing, we would go up to Willie's once a week and hang out and uh, meet up with Marge, you know, go grocery shopping at Trader Joe's and get food, like, they were family a little bit more than they were just somebody to learn from, because you want to learn from them, but you also wanted to like get context, the history. Like we wanted to understand the stories and you were going to get that more just hanging out with them and being a fly on the wall than you would like asking them at a lecture questions. Um, so it was a very different sort of historical relationship too. Yeah. And by, um, uh, by, Go I was just going to throw out, Latasha talks about cultural surrogacy in a lot of her writing, and um, there's this idea of when you're passing down these cultural elements of relationship, right? And so when we talk about um, our current, like, so if I were to shift us to right now and think about 2020, moving into 2021, um, and the current racial climate right now, there are a lot of people asking questions like, how do we move forward? How do we move past these divides? And oftentimes it comes from what you did. It's recognizing not just what a person can give you, but their humanity and wanting to interact with them in relationship. Um, and as you interact in relationship, then you learn. You learn these um, th- these other pieces, not just like how to dance, but what their lives were like. And, and I what posit something in here that just jogged something in my mind is this is one of the reasons why I had a hard time with the larger Lindy Hop community, um, particularly that is sort of centered around the Black Harlan Lindy Hopper experience, because it often felt like they weren't being serious, like, like those people are people. And they aren't just people to get information from, like they were people who had interesting stories and yes, they love telling those stories, but like to get them, like to let them have their space to be humans and not just be put on this pedestal is something I didn't get to see happen over the last 20 years. Um, and it, it always made me a little uncomfortable, especially because most of the audience was white. Not that it wasn't all, but all, but it was typically white and it just made me feel so strange uh, because that wasn't that kind of relationship happening. Yeah. 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 And, and I think that there's, I mean, there are exceptions, like there are people who did, um, form 
those relationships. Deeper relationships, but but there's something to be said about how um, how we kind of manage things in the U.S. oftentimes, right? So we often um, will, this is the issue with cultural appropriation, right? And so there's, we will often take on pieces of different cultures for our benefit, um, and when I say our, I would say that very loosely because technically I'm not even an American. So, <laughs> but, uh, but to be inclusive and to call in, right? This is a moment of calling in. Bobby and I talk about calling in versus calling out. Um, but we do kind of have to ask ourselves, like, if I'm, am I interacting with this person just to take from them? Or do I recognize the full spectrum of their community? As I'm engaging in swing dancing, am I doing this and, and not caring about this person or their history or how we've come to be where we are and I'm just taking this on to feel better about myself and yay this feels good or how did you do that thing in that movie that was cool versus like understanding the conditions under which they had to do those movies whether right? that's and the so, dancers the musicians the actors right. in movies like it's it's all part of the same sort of understanding and how you relate to an artist and art that's out in the world much less a person who's a part of the culture and what that right. means. So we're all part of culture so we're all putting it out there so to sit back and take a second to contextualize that for each person you meet is something that would be genuinely nice to do yeah yeah absolutely thank you so much for sharing appreciate that and by the way, I did want to throw out there that uh, you might get the impression just by listening to what we've talked about so far that the original Southern California dancers were, you know, benign, non-racist uh, people. Um, of course, they, you know, they grew up in their time, in their place. And so they, a lot of them did have, you know, beliefs that were racist. Um, it just, they... Uh, I think uh, how, how much of that in Shawnee, when, when you met them from the beginning, uh, or maybe when like Denise first ran into them, which I know was a few years earlier than, than most of the original, than most of the modern dancers, uh, how much do you, was there a change that you felt over the time that you got to know them or by the time that you had met them, were they actually, you know, how, how, how racist were they at the beginning of the time that you met them versus at the end? Or was that not even something that you felt? Uh, that wasn't, I definitely felt that there were moments that they had what I would call their generational biases, right? It wasn't like outright racism. Like strangely, I think their children's generation be a little bit more outright racist than most of them were, particularly because the majority of these people were first generation immigrants. So like there's a sense of like difference already with many of them. But Marge's generation actually even, because she's about 20 years younger than Hal, and she's an American coming from the Midwest, um, came from a very different place. And she would talk about that, that she herself didn't feel these ways. Um, but she knew a lot of people that did have those racist attitudes. And she would talk about how she grew up in that environment. Um, so you know, like, those things were in the back of her mind sometimes. But here she's, her and I spent a lot of time together. That was never a problem. And not only that, I knew when she would tell me stories about, you know, she followed around the black saxophone musicians because they were the best musicians and she was just loved the way that they sounded and would go to sort of all the clubs that you're not supposed to go to in LA when you're a white girl coming from the Midwest. <laughs> um, so she came from that environment, but many of the others did not or didn't display it um, and certainly would never 
have been rude enough to have said something to your face or in your presence, um, if they did, that I even know of. But I don't know many of them to have that attitude. Yeah, yeah I, I think that uh, some of the some of our white male friend instructors who had talked to some of the uh, old timers heard a few racist jokes yeah. thrown in. Yeah. So I do know that that is a, a fact. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, jokes might, again, that's, that's a kind of one of those things that I, I feel like is, uh, it might be dropped on a generational thing and they're, they're not doing it to be mean and they wouldn't necessarily like refuse, you know, business from that person or like they're, they're never like that. It's like the soft racism versus hard racism. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's a California yeah, thing. That's I... a very sort of different experience with racism in the entire area though. Yeah. Yeah, I think that this brings up the the notion of like racist behaviors versus like racism Belief in general, and, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, like I we recognizing that our I I think of the quote like racism is like the water that we swim in; it's everywhere, right? So it's it's with it it's it's it impacts all of us. I mean, even as a black woman, like I have some internalized racism. I've got some things that I have to deconstruct. Um, my sense of value, my understanding of the how the world works, comes from like what I've been told by you know. And so, um, it's what's really unique about um this group of people is i think it's really interesting i think it's easy for us to rid ourselves of nuance when we think about yeah. these ideas and so i appreciate your distinction between like the generational bias like things that were considered to be okay at that time versus things that were considered to be okay later on and um kind of like outright racist behaviors right so in the in the 50s and 60s like there were some outright racist behaviors that came from a lot of these people's children, right? And that's or even themselves, and, possibly, and we, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and even themselves. And we see the culmination. Like it's not to say that these things didn't exist before the fifties and sixties, because it sure, certainly did. But um, we saw the civil rights movement responding to this, like to the outright racist behaviors and laws and all of that. But racism, as we understand it. Um, has existed all around and changes so continually yeah, gender is actually a good way to explain it with this generation so like um they i definitely did see them change in how they dealt with gender gender norms over the years um i saw them go from you know a generation that had a hard time with divorce to most of them being divorced and learning to accept that and then they learned mm -hmm. to accept different families families that weren't normative maybe they learning to accept their you know gay family members, people in our dance community who are differently gendered, um, learning to accept women who didn't get married, but had children and not only accept it, but supported it. Like very, like I saw that change in them, but it was very clear that just like with how racist behaviors happen, that those things change. Like they don't keep many of those racist behaviors. Those racist behaviors might still be there, but like they start to shed some of them as the community changes around them. And the same thing with gender norms. They responded, yeah, there might be some resistance, some funny jokes at first, but like over time they start to say lead and follow and they made their own changes too. So I had to leave them that space because I couldn't like the minute they did that, I couldn't just be like, oh, write you off. Like, you know, you're done. But like, you're a product of your generation. I can't blame you for that, but I do want you to try. And if they did, they were great people and, and they did. So, yeah.
Hey everybody, this is Bobby White from Integrated Rhythm. We're here to ask you to please consider donating to the podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash integrated rhythm. You can do so by Venmoing at Bobby Swungover. And make sure to put a little IR in the note so we make sure it goes to the right people. You can also do so by PayPaling at Bobby White 3. And once again, putting a little IR in the in the window there. Doing so will help us keep this podcast going, and we love doing it, and we hope you love it too. If you can't afford to donate at this time because times are rough, we totally understand. We don't want you to put yourselves out. We want you to keep enjoying the podcast for free. However, if you have a little bit of pocket change in your pocket, we would greatly, greatly, greatly appreciate it. Thanks, and have a great day. Bobby. I noticed you like a little Western vibe, little... Um... I do. I do. I like a little bit of cowboy in my fashion, not going to lie. There's some really beautiful things that are out there on the internet shopping right now that Instagram is trying to sell me. And I'm telling you, I'm flipping. I'm flipping through those Instagram mm-hmm. things a lot, right? Yeah. And so one of the things that has been popping up are these really beautiful blankets that are, um, you know, Native American style blankets. Now, here's the thing is some of these blankets are created by uh, perhaps very well-meaning white people who they got some fashion sense. They're doing a thing. It looks really good. But now nah, you don't want to do that. What you want to do is instead you go over to eighthgeneration.com, eighthgeneration.com and get the most gorgeous, beautiful blankets made by Native American indigenous peoples. And these things are absolutely gorgeous. They got socks, they got towels, they got jewelry. And I'm, I'm serious. Like they are gorgeous. And I love their, I love their catch line is, uh, it is made by inspired natives, not inspired by natives. And I think that just says it so beautifully. And I'm telling you, they are gorgeous, yeah. gorgeous things that, for you to have around your house to keep warm. They also do jewelry and socks, by the way. And their socks are pretty awesome, too. Everything they do is awesome. Hgeneration.com. They're not even paying us for this. Like, this is just us showing love. Yes. Yes. We're back. Uh, Shawnee, so um, some people who meet you might not realize that you're a black woman. Uh, Do people in the swing dance, first off, have you encountered that in the swing dance scene where you're around people who don't realize that? And if so, what are some kind of the experiences that you've had in, in those instances? Um, so for those who can't see or who are listening, um, I happen to be a not your typical light skinned uh, black person. I don't have that sort of um, very light as we come in such a range of colors, but I don't have this sort of very light creamy color tone to my skin. I have a very sort of brownish caramely, darker native American looking skin color. And then I have straight hair. I don't know. Jeans are weird, right? Like (laughs) it's no telling my dad uh, has, you know, an Afro when I was a kid and my mom is white. It's just a, a thing that happens. And some kids come out with mixed with curly hair. Some kids don't. And that confuses a lot of people because um, I've grown up in an all black family. I've grown up living with my black family on weekends. You know, like I have black family experiences, like culture is part of my life. Um, it's who I am. And in the dance community, the way that that 
interaction happens is different than on the outside world. So it's it's rather uh, interesting. Um, so most of the time people don't know, and it's not from comments where like they're making an, a, a racist joke that they may not be you know realizing that there's a person of color in the room or a black person in the room. Right? You might tell the the joke about black people if there's a Hispanic in the room, but you're not afraid about it because there's not a black person in the room. Like they're, they're, it hasn't been those kinds of experiences. Um, it's typically been experiences when the majority of non-colored people in our community um, are struggling with learning about or discussing race, racism, people of color in the community. When they're talking about it amongst themselves, whether that's been after a lecture about um, an event or when that's been about my reaction to something in a room that they didn't realize, like, why would you react that way? Well, it's because I'm a black person and this is awkward and you're black. Like <laughs> that's sort of the reaction, the typical uh, reaction that I get, or they're struggling with something. And I say, well, this is why black people feel that way. And this is why it's important to maybe, you know, consider these things. And they're like, but, how would you, like you're just a person of color I'm like yes but I'm, I'm black I understand not only from a personal perspective but an academic perspective I've studied these things as a as you know like I said I was a gender science major um and yeah so the interactions are more like on a positive side at least these people are doing some work they're being introspective but they don't realize that there's somebody standing right next to them that they could talk to about these things or that they can look to or that they can you know maybe think more clearly about what they're saying and not be so like just letting the words run out of their mouth, but actually be conscious of what they're thinking in this process. Yeah. It's been really interesting. It's not the like accidental racist comment, which is what happens in the outside world when people don't realize that I'm black. Well, and so as a world traveling instructor, have your experiences been different in different places? Um, here's one of the places where I think colorism in the black community is a thing because I can get away with being in many places or having many experiences because people don't treat me or see me as a black person. So they, they see somebody who would be darker skinned or more phenotypically presenting as African-American as somebody that they might be a bit more reserved around as somebody that they might have to be more conscious about what that they say or do, but they don't feel that way around me. So people just often, um, open themselves up a bit more. Uh, and it has that weird way of like, I blend in in many spaces. Like I can blend in at a cookout and then I can blend in weirdly at some like random hotel in Sweden and hang out with people. Like I, I don't really know how it works, but it's enough that like, I feel different, but not different enough from people that they feel comfortable for me. And that's a thing about not being a darker skinned black woman, um, that my experiences are very different. Yeah, there's like this double-edged sword to that, like a double-sided experience where you might have more doors open up to you uh, in some respects, but then there's this also this other side of invisibility as well, where yep. there's kind of like erasure of an as of aspects of you also. Yeah, I mean, when we talk about even on the Lindy Hop scene or going just to the Balboa scene alone, people it's becoming more of a thing as we've been doing lectures about it lately that people recognize it. But when you talk about people of the color in the scene, people will skip right over me. Even being like one of the named teachers on most of their events, 
they'll skip right over me being invisible. Using one of those people. Yeah, so I'm I'm often invisible in that space. But invisibility, like you said, invisibility has its um, benefits sometimes. Mm -hmm. Being that fly on the wall and also being able to really hear the conversations of non-people of color um, are having, even when they're struggling in a good way with some of these concepts. Um, it's sometimes good to not hear them censored so that you can really help them figure out what they're feeling and thinking mm -hmm. um, as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, that makes me think of it's important for for people to be honest. And oftentimes, like when they have this visual cue of like, I shouldn't actually say the thing I'm actually thinking or feeling because I might be considered a racist or I might be considered to be wrong. Um, yeah. That actually doesn't help us moving forward. Like um, Robin D'Angelo and other writers talk about um, how I actually believe that W.E.B. Du Bois said this first. Um, so I'm not going to attribute something to, anyway, it's fine. That's a different conversation altogether. But um, the idea that um, the people who are like probably the biggest hindrances to progress are white progressives, like, because there is this sense in which like, we already know we got this, this is obvious. And it's like, it's actually not obvious in here. It's not obvious internally, um, and we need to deconstruct like that thing. Um, we got this because so they, like they say, we got this because they feel they never share that full internal thing that they right need to actually grapple with and wrestle with because they're afraid that if of being wrong or misstepping or whatever who they're around, they they never fully get that out, so they never extricate the inner deeper stuff. Yeah, yeah I'm, to I'm totally guilty as charged in that. They're like the whole like, you, you clamp up out of fear of not offending someone. And that just clamps up your entire, like, you know, the things that you need to think about or, you know, the, the aspects of your personality that come out that you have to, like, examine. Get a little yeah. deeper, too. Yeah. 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 We're all on this imperfect journey. And so it's an imperfect journey. <laughs> imperfect journey. <laughs> I pushed it a little too hard. I went, I was going to, imperfect journey. <laughs> I chose too low. <laughs> Bit. But, um, yeah. So Somo, do you mind just telling everyone a little bit about what meeting Shawnee for the first time meant to you or, or, or hearing about Shawnee meant to you? Yeah. Um, so you were talking about invisibility and I definitely, I experienced your invisibility because I, I just stepped into the swing dance scene truly for the first time in 2008, but then I wasn't really a part of it because of like life. And then I traveled out of the, I lived in Zambia for a number of years. So I actually like my real kind of like sustainable entry into the scene was probably around 2014, 26, 2015. And um, I was kind of like, I can't see myself in this dance. And I decided to study Baboa. And I, I was like, how, I don't make any sense at all. And um, as most of you all have heard, if you listen to episode three, um, Stephanie Schilling is a very good friend of mine and she and I have trained together. And so Stephanie is this beautiful biracial woman who has long legs. And um, anyway, so she she <laughs> also could That's herself in the scene. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. I mean, if you see her, you'll be like, "Why did you reduce her to her legs?" And you'll see her, and you'll be like, "Oh, because she actually has really long legs." <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. 
Oh my gosh, Stephanie, I'm so sorry. You know I love you. Anyway, so she is so many things. Just listen to episode three and you'll hear all the wonderful things. But she couldn't see herself on the scene either. And our dance teacher at the time, Valerie Sahlstrom, was like, no, but Stephanie, there is somebody who looks like you. Her name's Shawnee. There's a black woman. And we were like, what? <laughs> we were like, Tables fly in the air. Lady in the swing bit and the balcony. I remember the day I saw Stephanie and I was like, Look, there's another person like me. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> before she saw me. Yeah. And so, yeah, we literally, exactly, you saw her from a distance and then we heard about you and we were like, What is going on? And so then I think it was probably like a six month period of us trying to figure out how to get together. Um, but it was such a, a an amazing moment, but then also a frustrating moment because we were like, you're telling me that we've been up in this place for like three years and you haven't said, nobody has said nothing to us about this black lady in the scene. <laughs> so, so then we meet her, we meet you, Shawnee. Um, at, I, I met you at Cal, at Cal Bow. Cal Bow, and, yeah. yeah. Um, I so we just had like our three-year no anniversary. We met each other um, and we had a private lesson. And it was one of the first times that I felt understood in how my body moves. And um, it was such an, yeah, within the bubble scene, I should say. Um, and it was such an impactful moment that I was brought to tears. I was sobbing, not just crying. Like, All three like, of this us. Was, like, some- <laughs> It was like ugly crying. So yes, Shawnee, Stephanie, and I are all ugly crying. And our friend David, this beautiful man who uh, (laughs) I forgot David was there. (laughs) It was David uh, was clocking David. Standing there (laughs) Yes, he was just like standing there watching these three black women just sob. Like we found each other and it didn't make sense. Guys, I'm just gonna grab some water really quick. Exactly. I'll just be over here, but we're like, no, come here. Taste our tears, David. Exactly. Wipe our tears. It was ridiculous. I think Stephanie had buried her face into David. I had buried my face into you. And then, like, we were just like having this moment because when you are rendered invisible, when you are not considered in your educational process, when you like when what you've been told doesn't make sense to you and you're not you're not present because you've been systematically shut out when you find somebody who's had a similar experience who can invite you into your educational process who understands aspects of you that you don't have to explicitly explain that moment is magical and so that was what it was like for me to meet Shani for the first it time. It was, uh, everybody felt seen in that moment. It was like, uh, I felt seen as an instructor, as somebody who's been like harping on making sense and dancing for your own body. Um, I felt seen as seeing other people with me, like me and my dance community, and they felt seen and we just, we just all lost it. I mean, it was, yeah. it felt good to be seen. It's, yeah. it's a weird feeling. I was very invisible in this community for a long time, not because I wasn't good. And, and part of that was my own making. Um, but it feels good to, to be seen and recognized. Yeah. <sighs> that make me cry again. <laughs> Integrated rhythm. 
with Jasomo and Bobby. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Integrated Rhythm. We'd first off like to thank Tom Blair for his fantastic advice and Robots Radio Network for all of their support. We'd also like to thank Michelle Stokes and Laurel Ryan for their musical musings. Thank you so much for our yeah. introduction, our outro, and anything, any sound things you hear in the middle that are really cool, that's them. We appreciate you. And special thanks to Jessica Miltenberger for her enduring support, not only of this podcast and the inner workings thereof, but also as my wife. And great gratitude goes out to our friends and family who are the shoulders that we lean on and the ears that we speak to. If you listen to this podcast, you're part of that, and we appreciate your enduring support. 